Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. This is Claudia and today's episode will be about COP27 together with Alisa Gilbert. Alisa is the Director of Policy and Translation at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment, which is a climate think tank at Imperial College London. Alisa connects the Grantham Institute's climate change and environment expertise with policymakers, businesses and other stakeholders and has attended COP summits as part of Imperial College delegation. Alisa is the co-chair of the UK University's Climate Network, which brings together academic expertise on climate change from across the UK. She's also the interim director for the Center of Climate Change Innovation, helping to support the development and scale up innovative climate solutions. Prior to joining Imperial, she worked at a specialist energy and climate consultancy for nearly 12 years on a range of climate change mitigation adaptation topics. Alisa has worked with the UK and many other national governments and at the international level. She has also been a member of the UK's Natural Environment Research Council's advisory network. In the first part of this podcast, Alyssa and I met before this year's COP in Egypt, and in this part she explains the context, what the COP is, how it looks like, describes the atmosphere and gives her expectations. The second half then discusses COP27 outcomes, contrasts Alyssa's expectations with reality and towards the end, shares some tips on which resources to follow to stay on top of the climate change discussion. If you're eager to listen to the results straight away, You can do so by playing this episode from the 23rd minute. However, I highly recommend to listen to it all as the conversation with Alyssa is extremely enriching and she's a great expert on this topic. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hi Alyssa, it's amazing to have you on the podcast. It's exciting to speak to you about the COP27, which uh, this year will take place in Sham el-Sheikh in Egypt. We're recording this part of the podcast right before COP27 to talk about the expectation Alyssa has towards this event and give a bit of context. We will then meet again after COP to pre- compare these expectations with reality and reflect on how COP27 went. Um, so, Alisa, in your recent blog post, you describe the COP as the essential trade fair for all the all things climate. So I was just wondering, I'm sure most of our listeners probably know, could you please give shortly a context and remind us what COP is about? Yeah, okay, perfect. Yeah, so I did describe it as a trade fair, but the trade fair is actually the add-on bit. The actual core of COP itself is it's an international negotiation. And at its heart, COP itself stands for Conference of the Parties. All right, so it is the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's quite a mouthful. And the reason it's COP27 is because it's the 27th conference of those parties. And in this context, by conference, we basically mean meeting. But don't be confused. And there's another UN term that's a meeting of a party. So this is not a meeting of the parties. It's a conference of a parties that have agreed to something. And essentially, it's a, it's a follow on from the first time all the countries of the world agreed that climate change was a serious problem that people needed to do something about. And that was way back in 1992. So since then, once that was agreed, every year, roughly every year, the parties have got together to have a meeting to decide once we've recognized we need to do something, what is it we should do? And actually getting to the what is it we should do is quite complicated, especially with all of the countries of the world involved and it involves quite complicated negotiations. So essentially COP27 is the negotiations and they've become sophisticated over time. There are lots of different strands of negotiating activity. Some people will be talking about high level big ticket items like how do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions in different countries? That's a big mitigation agenda. But then there is also other strands of conversation that have been started up over time. So for example, there's one about technology transfer and capacity building. That's really vitally important. It's a more of a working group, so you might not hear about it in the news, but all of these discussions happen between representatives of the parties, which for the purposes of people understanding are the countries that go. That is actually what COP is. 
there could be way fewer people going to COP because that is all that that is the heart of what's happening there. But in fact, to make that fair as a process, observers are also allowed to go. Those are people who aren't participating in the negotiations, but are important parts of the conversation. So there's lots of observer, observer communities. And eventually what happened was those observers also want to speak to each other because all of these people who care about the same issue are now in the same place at the same time. And so then what builds from that is the trade fair element because the, that part of it is all of those other actors speaking to each other, a chance to meet each other, exchange ideas, update, and also build projects and action together that actually flow from or complement the things that are happening on the international negotiation stage. Amazing, thanks a lot. So you already described a bit that there's this various types of stakeholders. Could you also give a bit of a description of the atmosphere that is usually at the COPs? I don't know to how many COPs you've been, but you know, how the conference is organized overall, how much time do you actually have to network to meet with the people apart from the actual agenda that's in there, how busy it is and whether you have 16 hour days or how it is in terms of this to people who have never had a chance to go. Okay, yeah. So it's, the experience of COP is very different depending on who you are and why you're going and what you're trying to get out of it. But it's really enormous. Physically, it's enormous. And in different in different locations, it's been more or less spread out. So there's been COPs I've been to where it's in quite a small area. There's lots of activity, but quite contained. It's easy to go from place to place. And other places where it's in like a sprawling conference center, much more difficult to reach the different activities. So what you find is a few different parts of it, physically a few different parts. There's several big halls. Those big halls are essential for the negotiations and then several smaller rooms also for negotiations, like with a big round table in it so that plenty of countries can get round. But the big halls are set up so that all countries can be represented. That's a bit like you might see on TV when you see a UN kind of debate or discussion. So those are the places where the actual negotiations take place. And then the other parts of the official zone. So there's a number of those meeting rooms, by the way, because a lot of negotiations take place at the same time. And then there's smaller rooms where official side events also put on by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Secretariat. So there's official, they're called official side events take place. So there's a probably usually about 10 rooms in that same space where you can go through and you can see sessions that are provided by usually a combination of party, so national representatives and observer organizations talking about specific issues. So they might be talking about adaptation and resilience in, in a certain part of Africa. And then you'd hear people who were delivering that and also people talking about what it means for them as a country. And then in addition to that, so that's already quite a bit of activity, but in addition to that, there's an area with what we call pavilions. So there's this big area, again, also in the closed zone where the negotiations are. So you need a special access to this zone for the observers. And in that area, you see a number of, they're called pavilions, but they're like small, I don't know, little buildings that are made up on the spot like that, that you can go into. And some of them will have smaller like little areas where maybe 30 or 40 people can sit down and also hear a talk. And that's quite a busy area. So many countries have their own pavilion. So the UK, for example, has a pavilion. China always has a big pavilion. The US usually has a big pavilion. And in the years during the Trump administration, some US actors put together a US style pavilion. There's often a science pavilion focused on science and evidence that's put together by a combination of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the World Meteorological Organization and others. And then there are some of the pavilions or those areas that are groups of people coming together. So there's usually a business pavilion. There's often pavilions around certain issues. So you might find one on greenhouse gas removal or find one on particular areas of conversation. Like there's often a resilience hub. And each of those areas, which might be the size, some of them are, I guess, 
I'm trying to think of how to describe the size compared to something someone might know, like the size of a kind of a pret or, or a little bit bigger. Sometimes they have two floors. They'll provide sometimes demonstrations of particular things, topics related to that theme or that country. Mm-hmm. Some of them are hugely complex and ornate. They make you feel like you go into that country and you think, oh my gosh, I've just stepped into a piece of Indonesia. And But they also are about debate and discussion. What that means is it's actually really busy because you to each of these different pavilions usually have an agenda of events and activities. You can go and see people speak at that pavilion. You can pick up brochures or information that they've prepared specially for that event. There's often lots of audio visual displays that shows videos or stories that they're trying to convey. And it's all about either characterizing the challenge of climate change or presenting solutions. And those are all also opportunities to build partnerships with those different people. And then on top of that, there's all these kinds of people wandering around like yourself, right? So then you could meet with those people. And then this is all just in what's called the blue zone. So the blue zone is the part of COP that you can access if you actually are an official observer or a party negotiator. But on top of that, there's an area usually called the green zone. It's something very proximate, like you could just walk to it. And sometimes you have to travel a little bit further to get to it. In Sharm El Sheikh, it's going to be right close by because this has all been put together as temporary, I think, temporary constructions. So quite nearby. And this is completely open to the public. And the purpose of the green zone is really to help demonstrate to the public and hear public's views on climate change. And the green zone is different every time you go to a different country, how they decided to set it up. You'll have people there demonstrating like their technology, if they think it's consumer ready, or even if it's just something really exciting. So that experience of talking about climate change, there would be sessions there as well. And the idea is that there should be, usually the idea is that there should be movement so that members of the public should also have the chance then to see a talk given by someone who's come from the US to talk about climate change. So there will be sessions usually for the public in that area. Then the host country plays quite a big role in Again, not only how that feels, but the kind of sessions that will be delivered there. And then on top of all of that, you have the things that generally create the atmosphere. So sometimes you'll have an art exhibit or you'll have music or you'll have other dimensions, cultural dimensions that people want to bring into the discussion about climate change. Um, and then on top of that, and that this again really varies by country, you're likely to see or experience some kind of demonstration. So there's all usually an opportunity for civil society to take action in different parts and that In the COPs I've been to, I've seen that happen in the blue zone sometimes. Sometimes that happens outside and sometimes that happens maybe not even in the COP area, but in other places at the same time as you're having COP. So all of these things contribute to the atmosphere. Wow, super helpful. I had no idea. There's there's so many things happening at the same time. It reminded me a bit of Expo, but with the whole like big focus on climate change obviously and on on the actual content and not just the format how you described it is is reminding me a bit of that perfect and you already touched upon a bit on the topics that are discussed you mentioned resilience you mentioned adaptation mitigation all these terms and when it comes to cop 27 the one that's coming next week it's been also dubbed as the implementation COP or the African COP. So both of these have been assigned to it in the media. So let's start with the implementation one. We know that it's been emphasized clearly that implementation and action plan is super important. So it's this policy versus delivery, given that the policies have been already drafted, settled or designed. Now it's time for countries and all parties to act. So what do you think the types of discussion and events will be happening at the COP to meet this objective to actually make this implementation a reality? I think one of the really important places will be what I described where you have these like you have these different pavilions and some of them are focused on types of action 
And I think that's really good because what that provides is an opportunity for people from different parts of the world, different sort of segments or sectors of society. So you get businesses coming, but you also get government representatives and NGOs and so on coming, talking about the different actions they're taking, what's working, what's not working, and so on. And um, that also gives an opportunity for what are known as the non-state actors to also talk about what they're doing. So non-state actors are people who can take action, but who aren't actually at the negotiating table. So that can be cities. It can be regions, sub-regions of countries. It can also be businesses. It can be NGO-led action initiatives. So that's what you'll see happening in these kind of side zones. And some of it will be a continuation of existing activity. So that'll be quite important part of the implement implementation part of the COP. I guess in terms of the official negotiations that are relevant to the action part, there's quite a bit of discussion about, it's called a kind of transparency agenda in general, but how do people, countries, how do the parties to the convention report back on the emissions reductions that they're making. And I, the reason I mentioned that is, of course, there's this feedback loop, because if you're going to actually be taking action, being transparent and people being held to account for whether it's delivered or not will be an important part of that. But that's the main part where the negotiations will actually touch on that implementation or action dimension, because in fact, the negotiations are really specifically focusing on strategies, plans, and these things that happen at this really high overarching level, that international level, which isn't actually the place where action happens. Action will happen nationally or locally. When do you think, like, how do you think countries and the parties will react at concretely this COP that's coming up in Egypt? How will COP27 push the agenda on implementation? What is your kind of expectation of that? Well, there is a lot of pressure, right? Yeah, I mean, it's continually always a lot of pressure. And I think what's important for these discussions, and it's no different for COP27 than elsewhere, is that the context is always difficult. There's always some challenge. At the moment, there's in the in, in Europe, we see this geopolitical challenge. Um, we have quite a geopolitical challenge in relation to Russia and the Ukraine. That's affecting energy prices. And that's also, we feel, the likelihood of going into a recession. All of those things make it difficult for countries to make commitments when there's things like upfront capital costs of spending on climate change are high, it may be that they're for sure good investments over the long term, but poor and economic times make it hard to make those decisions. And at the same time, other countries around the world are already being affected by the impacts of climate change. And all of these things, these context, contextual issues, should lead to countries listening to each other, understanding the context, but agreeing that they need to move and pushing that forward. So that's the, that's what I expect from the implementation side. It's more this impetus, a continued recommitment. And every year you need to have this kind of recommitment. Yes, we know these things are tricky, but here's what we need to do in our own countries. Another issue that's going to come up on the agenda quite heavily is climate finance. That's really important on the implementation side because quite a lot of countries have submitted nationally determined contributions. These are documents that state their commitment to emissions reductions that are dependent on receiving some financial aid. And at the moment, we are in a gap where we're not quite, we've not quite delivered the 100 billion US dollars per year committed under the Paris Agreement for Climate Finance. So we're a bit behind on that. But even more importantly, we have no framework in place ready to press go on the next start date of the next climate finance set of commitments, which should be from 2025. And we need these commitments to make sure that those countries can implement to the level that they've set their kind of ambition in their NDCs. And what role do you think the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, so GFANS, plays in this? That was established last year, right? Yeah, I'm not an expert on GFANS by any shape. So GFANS is important. 
I think I think there's also there is this process of bringing in private sector money into the climate finance story, and that is really important. But that does not take away the commitment that countries need to make themselves to give public money. So the idea is that the public money would either or both take high risk first mover to allow private sector money to take the rest of the risk or provide money where it doesn't make sense, like where the private capital won't come. And all those things should help to leverage in the, the, that private money. So we still need to see these commitments that come from this kind of negotiation approach as well. But the fact that the private sector and then there's also these other global alliances on finance are happening, all build a context where it makes it much more palatable for countries to make these climate finance commitments and even much more likely that they should see that's necessary. I'd also like to label the maybe what we're talking about in terms of from like another perspective. It's also sometimes called loss and damage, what we're talking about. Or is it something else? Could you maybe explain to the listeners what loss and damage is and to what extent it will be part of COP27 next week? Okay, so loss and damage is a particular and different agenda. So if you look across the kind of main topic areas, you have... A, a whole set of discussions about mitigation, so reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's the most important thing that we need to do to stop climate change from continuing to get worse. So that's one important part of the negotiations. The next important part of the negotiations is about adaptation to climate change. That's what are the things that we can do to make sure that the impacts of climate change aren't as serious as they could be otherwise. Adaptation is tricky because we we don't yet have one single goal. What does adaptation mean? It just means reducing the impact, but that can mean lots of different actions. So with mitigation, we just have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's easy to measure, common kind of standard. So one of the things happening at this COP is to see if we can move towards a more straightforward global common adaptation goal. That's quite important. And because it's an Africa COP where impacts are being felt of climate change, the adaptation part of the story would be quite important. Then we've got climate finance. That's another bucket, which we've spoken about already. Now, loss and damage brings together actually now two dimensions. One is climate finance and one is the follow on to adaptation. So adaptation is taking action to reduce risk. But actually, there are some impacts of climate change that you can't do anything about. They lead to irrevocable losses and damages. And that's what the loss and damage agenda is about. It's a paint a very crude, easy picture. It's the islands that will be completely covered up when the sea level rises. That's a very clear example of loss and damage. But there are lots of other things that actually we could lose. And it, it will. it's more likely to manifest itself as parts of countries or types of ecosystems or even cultural assets that can be lost like languages or other cultural heritage if you lose a specific vulnerable or particular population or community has to move. Now the loss and damage agenda then links to the finance agenda because the point of this is saying you need finance to help some countries with reducing greenhouse gases, that's mitigation. You need finance to help some countries with adaptation. That's preparing in advance or managing to reduce your impacts to climate change. But the final bit is you actually need some finance for those irrevocable losses. And that's in a way a type of compensation. And that strand has been left out of climate finance commitments officially so far. And this strand of discussing what do we do about loss and damage has also not it's been discussed many cops before there's like discussion groups on it and a discussion group was set up in cop but not very much progress has been made on it and the thinking is that with the increased number of climate related uh, actual impacts and events that we've had all around the world not just in the most wealth poorest countries also in wealthy countries in some vulnerable regions and some less vulnerable regions 
this is becoming more and more of an issue because we're actually seeing potential like actual loss and damage happening. So it's more acute and we expect to hear those voices more loudly in Africa. But also this discussion about how we divide up finance in the next sort of structure, which would start in 2025, also begs the question, do we need a stream of that that's about loss and damage? Of course, wealthier developed nations are pretty concerned about opening the box on compensation. It can be very hard to decide what you compensate, what you don't compensate, and how much compensation should go to which thing. So this is going to be a long conversation. So really, the sort of loss and damage has come up a lot at this COP because people think it's likely to be quite high on the presidency's agenda, as in the Egyptian presidency's agenda, and that the conversation might get more deeper and sophisticated than it has before. But agreeing to take some action on it will probably be the most progress we can expect. Yeah. Well, I'll be super curious to hear how it actually will play out next week. But so we talked about all these areas. Now, by coming back to those expectations, which area of these do you personally hope to be prioritized next week? Or do you think there will be one that will be more prioritized than the other? It's very possible that we will see less focus on mitigation than and more focus on adaptation and loss and damage and the issues that are more relevant to the region. I have a personal soft spot for adaptation. <laughs> I've always been interested in it. And also because it's always a bit the poorer cousin to mitigation. It's harder in some ways, harder mm-hmm. in some ways. So I do hope we make progress on the adaptation goal. It's not as high profile as the other issues. I really think it's important that we make some progress on the finance side. I think that's actually the most important thing. It's also important to me that we hear strong voices continuing to talk about mitigation. So I don't expect to see big progress on mitigation, but I want it to be a greater part of the narrative than I would expect. So I'm expecting there to be quite a focus on adaptation, quite talk a lot of talk about loss and damage, but I want to make sure that we hear a conversation about mitigation as well, coming from COP, not just coming from external voices. And I hope that we see some engagement with civil society at COP. That will be important. And I hope we get to see some voices and some engagement, some interesting and genuine engagement from especially people who are Egyptian. Amazing. Yeah, my next question was actually, what is successful COP for you? But I feel like you've answered that with this. Is yeah, there anything else that you want to come out of there and be like, this is this is something I was hoping to to have discussed or to have succeeded in personally, let's say. Do you think Egypt has made quite a lot about the fact that they're bringing this to be an Africa COP and also bringing forward Arab states, particularly, that they feel themselves as an important mover and shaker in. And the next COP will be at UAE. So what I really also hope for is that that they come good on that so that we hear commitments and voices from African, a wide range of African and Arab nations talking about why this is important to them and not just in a kind of a we'd like some compensation kind of way. That's, of course, valid, but being part of all aspects of this agenda and being engaged and sharing their stories and their kind of ambitions. I'm super excited to talk to you again in two weeks, more or less, after COP and see how all of these that we discuss change or whether it was actually discussed in COP. And I'll be following from London. Excited to speak to you in two weeks then.
Hi, Alisa. Welcome back. We are now recording this part of the podcast after COP27 and we'll discuss how it looked, uh, talk about the outcomes and reflect back on the atmosphere. I prepared just a bit of statistics for the beginning. COP27 this year had 112 heads of states and government, more than 600 lobbies from the fossil fuel industry. I needed to include this one. An estimate of 800 private jets came. There were 11 thematic days, so each day had a topic, for example, Finance Day or Adaptation and Agriculture Day. We can talk about this a bit more. And most importantly, 46,000 delegates, including ministers, scientists, policymakers, members of the civil society, IGOs, activists and youth, including you, Alyssa. I'd like to first start about talking a bit about the atmosphere we discussed in the previous part. You mentioned that regarding the atmosphere, the host country matters. And uh, I've read that one delegate said that he never experienced the COP this untransparent, unpredictable and chaotic. And also in the first days of COP, there were, for example, some issues with internet so people couldn't access some websites such as Al Jazeera let's say and Egypt also previously cracked down on some climate activists and environmental independent research so I'd like to ask you what's your view on this and how do you think this changed the atmosphere and more general how do you assess the atmosphere of this year's COP in hindsight? Yeah okay so it's always hard to differentiate between one's own personal experience and the kind of overall kind of atmosphere. So some of the things that you described aren't things that I experienced myself, but obviously it's really important if there was a curtailing of access to websites for key people or access in general for certain groups. I didn't experience that myself. It was a little bit chaotic in some places. The internet connectivity in the actual site was pretty poor in general. So there's a whole vast area of the place where you just couldn't get internet connection. There were thousands and thousands of people there. So also there was a lot of pull on that capability, but that was probably quite tricky for people. And I suspect also quite tricky for, for delegates who were also trying to access documents and things like that. I don't, there's no way that was deliberate, I don't think. That was just the way it was on the site. There were some comments about less sort of obvious opportunities for protest. And I think probably the experience of visitors would be quite different than the experience perhaps of Egyptians or people who are local. So within the venue, you could see small organized kind of protest people having their voices heard, but in quite a managed way. And there was a little bit also on entrance to the the venue, some kind of people, protest is too strong a word, people convening and then signs and posters. Yeah, it was activism of some sort, nothing too enormous. Again, it's difficult to see what was missing, but there wasn't anything that was really extreme or controversial there. And it might also be, as I said, that the people who were local weren't able to make their voices heard, but there was perhaps some leniency given to international protesters and so on. The atmosphere felt to me quite similar to how they, it normally feels at COP, quite busy. You can pick and pick at some of the specific organizational elements that would have made it easier to navigate, but I don't know how different it was from normal. In my head, sorry, just before I finish, my head, one of the things that I remember is that When we were at COP in Glasgow, I've honestly never seen so many police in one place as in Glasgow. And people talk a lot about the kind of police presence. And there was quite a strong police presence, not just at the venue, but in Sharm el-Sheikh in general. Very big police presence. But to some extent, that's something that also makes you feel more comfortable when you're a visitor in a foreign country. In my head, really, I kept comparing it to the kind of barricades that were up around the venue in Glasgow and the presence of police there, too. So this is not the only place where you see police concerned about environmental protesters. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. I guess the contrast uh, this year or compared to last year to this year is quite big when we compare it, let's say, from this year to next year. I'll be also interested to see how that goes, the comparison between the atmosphere and the between the COPs. But let's maybe hop over to the 
overall results. And so we know that the COP ended around 36 hours later than it was supposed to. And uh, there was a bit of a division between the, let's say, rich and the poor countries. But I believe that the that we agree on the one biggest overall result, which is the loss and damage fund. So could you maybe give us a bit of overall result perspective and what you think is the highlight, if you disagree with me, that is the loss and damage fund? Yeah, so I would agree with you. We were going into this COP, as you and I discussed before, not with any expectations of any big headline statements, particularly around emissions reductions on the mitigation agenda. But we were hoping for some better outcomes, I think, on the overall climate finance story. I don't see any kind of major structural gains on climate finance in broad terms. That leaves loss and damage. Loss and damage was major progress in a way, because what we see is a conceptual change to the way in which loss and damage is being approached. So loss and damage, just to remind people, is to do with the impacts that climate change has that causes measurable losses to countries and also irreparable. So things that you can't actually fix. That could be cultural heritage or physical assets or land, as well as obviously loss of life. And then damage is things that are measurable impacts, but that you could, they're damages, so you could actually do something about it. So what's interesting about the discussions and the structure, first of all, was that loss and damage was put firmly on the agenda from the very beginning. And that was something that the presidency fought for. That meant that it got a lot more airtime. It's not the first time it's been discussed. It has been something that has been being discussed for the last 30 years. The significant progress is that I think conceptually the negotiators reached a point where it was really no longer acceptable to be a country from the developed world that says climate change is serious and is happening now and not go the next step, which is to say that we probably need to think about how we deal with the losses and damages that are occurring from climate change. So that going that step further and then creating a structure, or at least the concept of the ability for there to be a structure where finance is channeled, particularly into a loss and damage pot, is the most significant thing. At the moment, from the Paris Agreement, we had this idea of collecting funds. At that point, the, the Paris Agreement target was 100 billion US dollars per annum. And that was just a general pot. And then there was a discussion in Glasgow about the fact that the vast majority of the money that goes into this general pot helps countries reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, which is the mitigation part of the agenda. And of course, in a way, the most important part of the agenda, because it's the thing that will reduce climate change impacts in the future. But it was noteworthy that a very tiny amount of that money was set aside for adaptation, which is upfront preparing yourself for the impacts of climate change, which is actually quite important. That's another part of the prevention is better than cure story. And so now the idea is that we have a third element of finance so that rather than having the big pot we have from Paris Agreement, you have the pot divided into three sections, not necessarily equal, but you have basically three pots of global finance, some for mitigation support, some for adaptation and preparation, and some for loss and damage. And regarding the loss and damage one, so it was not that this fund was already created, that this COP, it was only agreed that this fund would be created, right? So now comes the challenge of actually oper operationalizing it. So as I understood it, it means that it's only going to be in place in 2023 and maybe even like the COP28 next year will focus way more on how it will work or will this process be done until the next COP? about how it actually will work, how it will look like. Because for example, there's also this debate on who will provide these funds. It was meant to be, as we discussed also before, that the rich countries would give money to the develop or developed nations to the developing nations. However, for, for example, um, China kind of classifies as developing nation according to some 1992 treaty. However, it's the third biggest emitter, right? After the EU and the US. 
So there's all these discussions, but it's just been this, uh, in the level of discussions at this point, right? Yeah, that's right. You can expect years of discussion about this. Mm. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long okay. time. We give a lot of, we put a lot of focus on the COP itself, but that's just the annual event. In between COPs, there's lots of intercessional debates and discussions. So there's actually negotiations that take place at quite regular intervals throughout the year. And then there's also the opportunity for the presidency to call meetings to make decisions or start to progress the agenda on things that they think are important. So I would be expecting the Egyptian presidency to be leading forward discussions for the rest of next year in a bit of a continual fashion to get those proposals ready for the COP next year. But there's for sure going to be lots of outstanding technical points before this is ready to go. Yeah, are we hoping to see this in the media throughout the year? And not just only this big boom two weeks after COP and then it's going to be silent until next year. Okay, so we talked about loss and damage, but then you also mentioned the remaining two buckets, let's say, of climate finance, so adaptation and mitigation. Can you talk us through a bit about the mitigation part first? Two weeks ago, you were hoping that mitigation would be discussed more than you expected. Was this the case or not really? In the first days of COP, there was this debate about no backsliding, so that the 1.5 1.5 degree efforts from COP26 in Glasgow wouldn't be taken back. Is this a good outcome or should we have hope for more? So I think, I guess we weren't expecting anything more than this. There, there could have been more countries that came forward with more ambitious pledges. But what we really need to see is countries like making a step change and delivering on their pledges. That is the most important thing now. People could keep coming back with more and more stringent goals, but unless unless we're seeing delivery on what we have now and potentially over delivery, then we're not going to get to where we need to be. We weren't really expecting there to be, we didn't, usually countries who are going to make more ambitious pledges, they start to trail them a little bit before, maybe give some inkling. And some people like to declare them on the stage, but we didn't really, couldn't couldn't have identified which countries were going to come forward with something more specific on greenhouse gas emissions reductions commitments now. So as a result, we weren't surprised there. Also, I think we discussed this before as well. The priorities of the Egyptian government were going to be on adaptation, loss of damage, the kind of the issues that weren't treated actually as thoroughly in the Glasgow COP. And that's what we saw. We saw them putting their effort really strongly into the diplomacy effort around loss and damage. You can't really achieve all of these things at once in a presidency cycle. And we saw that's that's why the achievement of the Paris Agreement was so impressive. They went along a lot of parallel lines of negotiation all at once. But that was a much bigger COP. We expect in these smaller COPs to maybe make progress on just a few more significant issues. In terms of one and a half degrees, it's still there. It's still in the text. And for me, what's most significant is that we had all of these countries come together at a time where there's lots of other challenging geopolitical context. And still everybody's really committed to this issue and to be trying to push forward and achieve their mitigation targets. So that's probably what we should at least feel positive about. Yeah, that's very optimistic. And then coming to adaptation, how do you assess this in hindsight? So kind of adaptation, loss and damage, as you mentioned, were supposed to be in the forefront of this Egyptian or African COP. How do you see the progress on adaptation? Yeah, so there were lots of conversations about adaptation. And one of the one of the challenges that that the presidency was looking to to make progress on was what's known as the global adaptation goal. So when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions reductions and we talk about mitigation, it's quite easy to just go for 
a number, a percentage reduction or a net zero, that kind of thing. It's much harder with adaptation to define what is good adaptation and where we want to be. There was a lot of, there's been, and there continues to be, and it was in the text, a lot of focus on equipping all countries with early warning systems. That's a really good concrete objective that we know improves resilience to climate outcomes and is not, you don't have universally available good early warning systems, which could be very helpful. So people latched onto that as quite a good way to at least put some target on adaptation, but that's not really a broad enough adaptation goal to cover everything. So the adaptation text still requires a lot more work in the coming year, and I think that's pretty much where they got to. There are some targets in there about on reducing people's vulnerability around the world to climate impacts over the coming years with some kind of target attached, um, and also a target on increasing people's resilience to certain kinds of outcomes, as, as well as early warning systems. So it's not quite boiled down in, yet into something like you could say, oh, this is the global adaptation target. But a little bit of progress was made, and a continued kind of program of work and discussions with some deep detail around it has been set out for the coming year. And what would be, in your opinion, like the ideal outcome for adaptation? Let's say, what would we want to have achieved in a year? There's quite a bit that's already good. So there's quite a bit that's action oriented, particularly around planning. So people getting adaptation plans in play. But there needs to be a bit more detail around taking action on those plans. So that's this increasing resilience bit. And maybe the tricky thing at the moment is quite vague. So, you know, if you've got a target that's about increasing the resilience of X percent of your population, it doesn't really tell you anything about what you have to do that and what your baselines are. So we need a little bit more probably on measurability and monitoring of adaptation actions that will help us know what's successful, but it will also help us know if people are making, you know, an effort. It's similar with vulnerability. It's very difficult to measure vulnerability. It's same, it's equally important, like with mitigation, but of course, much more difficult than mitigation because for mitigation, you just have to measure greenhouse gas emissions. And, and yes, you have places where you need proxies for that and it's technical, it's difficult, but at least you know what you're measuring ultimately. With measuring vulnerability of people and assets in nature, it's not exactly clear what you mean. And once people are involved, as in you're measuring people, it's a little bit more subjective and harder to figure out what you mean by that. So if we take into account kind of the recent impacts that we had of the floods of Pakistan, to, which was attributable to a great extent to climate change, I can't remember the exact numbers, but there's been an attribution study of that. People were affected, the impacts that flood had on people was a function of the flood itself, but also how exposed they were to the flood and how vulnerable they were to the flood itself as well. And you can actually take measures to reduce people's exposure and people's vulnerability. And that's what adaptation is, right? But then how are you, what are you, what metric are you using for vulnerability? That is, that's very tricky, especially because you might be trying to measure someone's vulnerability to a whole range of climate related impacts. So your vulnerability to flooding might be different to your vulnerability to a heat event and different again to your vulnerability to different kinds of full or heavy precipitation and so on. And that for me, that's the kind of bit that, that that's tricky. And then you get into kind of, yeah, how can how can you, through a climate change agreement, help people make these changes in their country to these factors, which go much, much more, much, much broader. It's no longer really just an environmental issue. So we talked about uh, things that I kind of were in the final text of the COP27, but the thing that wasn't there, and actually it wasn't there ever since the 30 years that the UN climate negotiations are happening, is the elimination of the basically the primary cause of global warming, which is the, or like the human impact on global warming, which is fossil fuels. Some countries at the COP27 led by India 
wanted to go further and include a commitment to phase out fossil fuels. But in the end, the resolution in the text was the same as the one at Glasgow, which was only phasing it down and reducing it, re reducing it and not phasing it out completely. So could you please tell us why this effort was not included and maybe which what's the biggest setback and which countries are the ones not agreeing with this? I think it, this is, you know, a really challenging area for negotiations. The fact that we have well over 190 countries negotiating on climate change is amazing, impressive, important, but also really challenging. And of course, you have in that mix countries that are very committed to fossil fuels, fossil fuel producers, but also many countries, including our own, who for the moment, we can't really function without fossil fuels. But there are some countries that are much more committed than others to their use of fossil fuel into the near and medium term future and some who are very reliant on them. And so that means that you've got all of those people at the negotiating table, some very nervous about commitments, overt commitments to phasing out fossil fuels, and some positively against, definitively against. And so that makes getting that kind of wording into the text very difficult. But what you can see is this gradual progress from where we were before Glasgow COP, where no one had ever mentioned fossil fuels in a final text decision, to having it in last year as a kind of phase down. And I don't think that in general, people are in an, under any illusion what this means. So we're getting closer to the language being in the text, but it's all a bit of a diplomatic dance, to be honest. And the main question goes back to implementation and action. What does that mean? What does any of this mean about the decisions that countries are making, about actually making a transition and a move in a way that's kind of and equitable towards a world that's less reliant on fossil fuels? That's, that's where the rubber hits the road, really. How are these conversations held? Are there practicalities being talked about or is it only just someone says, OK, we phase out coal and oil and gas and, and that's it? Because obviously, as you said, like some countries are highly dependent on it and many livelihoods depend on it. So how does this work at COP? How do people, how is this debate? How does the debate work? I think yeah. there's two, two. OK, let me just paint the picture for you. Then mm. if you go to the COP meetings, what there are is there's an area where each delegation, like negotiating group, has its own little offices. So if you walk around, there's bits that have these really snazzy kind of countries have a snazzy pavilion you can go to. And there there'll be public talks and activities within the blue zone where they'll be talking and showing off the great stuff they want to talk about. But actually in a separate part, there are just closed door rooms where they are designed for the negotiating parties to regroup and basically say, what is it that we want to say about this or that? Every negotiating group will have done all of their homework before they went to COP about what kind of things they want to agree to say, what language they're willing to accept in a document about all kinds of different things, what kind of funding they have available to make announcements about. So that's the kind of funding you heard people talk about that would be going to adaptation or mitigation in another part of the world or aid for whatever what initiatives they're involved in that they want to share and where they really know that they're able to take action at home and therefore they want to promote that and where there are areas that they're not sure about and therefore they won't be promoting those things or areas where they absolutely don't, where there are red line issues. They will come to the meeting already with that information. So there are not discussions, specific practical discussions between any of the parties about achieving any of these goals. This is a negotiation, okay, where people are bringing to the table what they're going to commonly all agree to do, knowing what they can and cannot do themselves, right? That is the nature of those negotiations. And that's fine. That's really important. As I said before, this is absolutely a necessary part of achieving climate action is to have a commonly agreed, at least we're all going to do this document so that other everyone from the countries go back and then they do that or more. 
then they have to deliver on it. What that means is if you go into a room where there's negotiations, there'll be a combination. Sometimes it will be large set piece contributions. So near the beginning of the event, you'll hear each of the countries deliver like a three minute address. But actually then as the weeks go on, the negotiations break up into lots of different subgroups and sub meetings and you'll have these big round tables where countries will all sit around it or big rooms where every country will have a seat and they'll start talking through the text and making interventions or contributions and have conversations and everything that people say is actually very deliberate and thoughtful and then sometimes the negotiators will take a break they might have conversations between themselves there'll be little groups and meetings between countries with common concerns at different intervals and those there will be separate meeting rooms for them to meet in between negotiations and then they'll come back and then they'll come on mass or in a block and they'll say okay this is the kind of language that we would accept on this issue and not on that one etc yeah language is a, an important part of the whole climate discussion as also in the IPCC reports, right? Every word, like they sit in hours in plenaries to make sure the wording is right. But this is a bit of different context because it's, that's about the science. But here, I believe it's also quite a wordplay sometimes. And you also said that these global conversation, global commitments, and basically the whole conference of parties, it's necessary, but not sufficient action towards um mitigating and adapting to climate change. As we go towards the end, let me now ask you about your favorite moment of this year's COP. What was your favorite part? So I was involved when I was there. I was actually involved in a lot of smaller kind of discussions and little subgroups and side groups. And I think that's what made me most excited. I had a really fantastic meeting with the Global Alliance of Universities on Climate. It's a group of about 14 or 15 universities and they had a group of youth ambassadors who went and I had a morning where I sat down with them for about 45 minutes and heard what their questions were and their concerns and how they want to take action as kind of youth leaders about climate and what they see happening going forward. That for me was the best because that was really inspiring. You I mean ultimately you need you can have these global arch overarching agreements but you're going to need people to deliver on the action and continue to push across within all of different countries and across all of these different issues and that for me was really inspiring to see the energy and the drive that these young people had they're from all different countries in the world they come from with very different perspectives and they're absolutely committed to taking action on this issue in their relevant context so that for me was my highlight Great. And I have my last question here, although it will be super nice to end on this positive note, but let's do it anyway. So as I said already, the next year, the COP28 will be in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai. And given the nature of this, these countries, this region, essentially, focus on the energy sector and fossil fuels would be an obvious place to start. What are your expectations towards the next COP? And what would you hope the leaders and the delegates learn from this year and kind of continue working on towards next year and in next year's COP? So I guess in terms of hopes for next year. Look, um, UAE is good at doing things big and expensively. And I expect we'll see a big show. That's great. They're going to make a big fuss of COP and they are going to try and attract green businesses and entrepreneurs and innovators into UAE. And they're going to try and show everyone that this is a great place to be green and so on. And they're going to be trying to build that kind of future looking clean green story. Let's let's see. That will be great. And we want to see a lot of shouting about that. The interesting question will be, how do they tell their story about fossil fuels? What is going to be the story about a transition there, if any? Or is it going to just be ignoring the fact that there's this big kind of legacy? And that's also where they get all their money from. So that that's going to be really interesting, whether it's a bit more of a transition story or a kind of a 
hoping to have both, have your cake and eat it, as we would say. But it certainly will be a big event. There's a lot for them to build on that Egypt started talking about. And I expect we'll see a similar approach like we had with Egypt wanting to show themselves as being representative from the Middle East region. It will be the second Middle East COP in a row. That's really important because the region is both suffering from significant climate change impacts, but also is a source of a lot of the world's oil. Whilst it makes it more difficult to have the conversation about climate change, it's also really important because we can't make these changes without having an open and honest, transparent conversation with these kinds of countries. And looking at it from that perspective is going to be quite important. Yeah, I just like to emphasize the honest and transparent part, because I believe that's extremely important in any discussion and negotiation, but especially about climate. So I'm extremely curious about it, and I'll be hoping to be in touch with you also next year about this. Maybe one last question, a more like a practical one. Who, what and where do you suggest to follow for our listeners if they want to stay on top of the news when it comes to climate change in general, or especially maybe related to COP, where do you go to? Okay, so there's a few recommendations I'd have. So there's an organization called the Earth's Negotiation Bulletin, ENB. They follow the, the negotiations quite closely, so they have daily updates when there is something like COP, but they also follow all of the other related international negotiations on environmental issues, like the forthcoming biodiversity COP in Montreal, and they also cover the intercessional discussions, and in quite a level of detail, so they've got different who provide this information for them. So I definitely recommend the Earth Negotiation bulletin. I would also recommend Carbon Brief, which is a specialist news outlet. They provide really good updates. I think they just released the COP27 one now. And they also have some really good reporters who are on Twitter who provide you with quite a bit of live information as these things are unfolding. So maybe one or two Twitter people to follow? Yeah, let's see. So I think you can follow a couple of reporters from Carbon Reef, like Simon Evans, he's Dr. Sim Evans on Twitter, and Aruna Chandrasakar, who's also a reporter for for Carbon Reef, and then Jen Allen from the University of Cardiff, who covers negotiations quite closely, and she's at Jen Iris Allen on Twitter. Perfect. Thank you very much, Elisa. It was a pleasure to have you guide us through COP both before and after. And do you also have some outlet where people can follow you. I should definitely recommend people to follow the Grantham Institute where you're working and also Imperial College and any other place where people can find you or get in touch. I'm on Twitter, not very often, but I am there at Elisa R. Gilbert. So you can go there for the moment. And yeah, I think that's the best choice for now. Perfect. Thank you very much, Elisa. Um, It was a pleasure, as I said, and I hope to speak to you soon. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye.